my friends. Welcome back. Well, this is an exciting episode for me anyway. Um, my guest this week is Douglas Stewart. Douglas is a Scottish writer whose debut novel, Shaggy Bane, was awarded, among many others, the 2020 Booker Prize. It was the finalist for the National Book Award, the Penn Hemingway, the National Book Critics Circle, and named a notable book of the year by both the New York Times and the Washington Post. The Booker Prize judges wrote, We were bowled over by this first novel, which creates an amazingly intimate, compassionate, gripping portrait of addiction, courage, and love. The book gives a vivid glimpse of a marginalized, impoverished community in a bygone era of British history. It's a desperately sad, almost hopeful examination of family and the destructive powers of desire. That's a pretty good pacey of it. And more to the point, I couldn't put this book down. I've handed it to everyone I know. And if you didn't want to read it before, I guarantee you this conversation will make you want to buy everything that Douglas has ever written. He's got other short stories in The New Yorker that are just mesmerizing. And a new book coming out soon. This episode changed me in a way. And it changed what I think it means to be well-read. I hope you love it as much as I did. Your book, your book. I oh. mean, I really, I, it really floored me, your book, Douglas. I, 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 I couldn't bear it to end and yet I couldn't not read it. So mm. that's an amazing thing to pull off, even more extraordinary to pull this off on your first novel. I mean, breathtaking. So there, there's my, tribute that is is so heartfelt and 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 real so so to have you on the show and have you here and to get your list of books honestly if if you were the only interview i did this season i would consider it a triumph so thank you oh, for being here thank you so much can i just be the whole podcast where you say something nice about my <laughs> i'm happy with that for sure at this rate definitely a hundred percent so let me ask you how was it uh how was it to come up with the list? What was it like to think of them? How did they, how readily did they emerge or not? Actually, it was, it, I actually found it quite difficult, I think, because it's hard. So I try to take something away from every book I ever read and to let it alter me in some way. And uh, and so it was hard to choose the ones that meant the most to me. Not my favorite books, but the ones that had been pivotal in my life and, mm. and it really taught me something. And And so I knew what they were, but... I tend in my mind to clump books together into into themes or societal themes, why they've moved me or why they've influenced me. And so it was hard to choose just the one. You'll have seen from my list. I was like, it could also be this. It could also be this. No, what I, nightmare. I loved it. No, it was so fun. I, as I say every week on this podcast, my favorite moment up other than the interview is getting that list. It's a ju mm. such a juicy email always when my, when my guest sends me their list. And unpacking it becomes my job for the week, which I adore the immersion into, you know, everyone's, in inner life honestly it's a privilege mm. to be allowed in and that yours came with annotated notes and variants was just glorious because because in a way what it did was gave me a head start it allowed mm. me to think right so let's start your first book is Jude the Obscure by Thomas mm. Hardy it was published in 1896 now the books that you put as its accompaniments mm. was so interesting because it allowed me because the, the work of a great classic like Jude the Obscure is that mm. there are so many po potential points of entry right you you mm -hmm. could read it in your way which you will tell me about others might read it as a story of thwarted ambition or um mm -hmm. Uh, you know, a, a, a love story gone awry, or but your reading is yours, and the accompanying mm. books that you wanted around it mm -hmm. gave me some insights into mm. into what your understanding of that book was. So, sh share with me. Share with me how old you were and when you first read this book. Oh, oh now we're going back in the mists of time. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, Sonia, the reason why Jude the Obscure meant a lot to me was because it was one of the very first books I ever read. Mm. Um, you know, I grew up in a time and a place. I'm a kid from 1980s Glasgow, and we didn't have books at home. We didn't turn to literature. And, and that wasn't especially unusual for the time or the place. You know, we were young boys that were mostly outside or we found ourselves in cinema 
important. We certainly never saw our lives reflected in literature, and therefore we didn't really turn to books. And I only noticed how unusual that is when I joined the literary community and I won Booker and, and I started to talk about that. But for me and for the kids around me, it didn't make us any less empathetic or creative or, or, or ask us to use our imaginations any less. Um, but we just didn't have books. And then there was another thing very much about my childhood is I didn't have enough peace to read. You know, children really need peace inside themselves, but they also need peace in their environment. And having read Shuggy Bain, you'll understand that being a young queer boy growing up in a very uh, working class masculine place, I was sort of beset by a lot of bullying from the age of six on. But then I was also dealing with my mother and her alcoholism. You know, my mother... Uh, was an alcoholic from my first memory until she died when I was 16. Mm. And so no matter what any day threw at me, it just was very rarely peaceful. Mm. And so I just couldn't concentrate on books. Mm. And so it sounds a little bit sad to say this, but I, you know, I'm sort of really struggling in school throughout all my youth. I, I miss it whenever I can because I don't want to be bullied or I want to be at home with my mom and make sure she's okay. So my education is really spotty. Mm. But my mother dies when I'm 16. She dies very, very unexpectedly one day when I'm at school. And after that, uh, you know, I'm first of all, my mother was a single mother, so I'm alone. Um, but also, you know, she, her having her release, I suppose, Sonia, gave me enormous amount of peace. I could suddenly sort of focus on myself. And I had these really remarkable English teachers, these two kind of grumpy old Glaswegian men who... Uh, spent most of their days just trying to manage a very rowdy class of kids that probably weren't having their emotional needs met, never mind their educational needs. And he just sees me sort of like out there on my own trying to finish high school, trying to hold it together. And he puts Thomas Hardy in front of me and he just starts, uh, you know, really feeding me all the books. And I read Tess. I think the very first book I actually read was um, The Mayor of Casterbridge. Wow. But out of all of Hardy's books, the one that stuck with me the most is actually his hardest, I think, mm. um, or at least it's, he's, le he's least comforting, and that's The Obscure. And there was something about it. So here I am, uh, effectively an orphan. You know, I never knew my father. He had died when I was really young, uh, although he left my mother before he died. My mother was dead. I'm the first kid in my family who is trying to finish high school. Um, and trying to figure out where I am in the world. And, and in Jude, I saw a real kindred spirit. You know, I saw this young stonemason who was sort of looking across the landscape and looking at the university in the city and hoping to get there and hoping to get there, hoping to better himself and sort of believing he can do it, but also riddled with feelings of inferiority. Um, and then the book takes you through all the events of his life and how life presses in against you and, and stops you sometimes from achieving your dreams or, or, or fate subverts them or, or turns them away. And, and so I felt really deeply for Jude on that level. I just felt this kindred spirit and the fact that these are now a hundred years apart, my existence and Jude's. And certainly I'd never even been to England, never mind, uh, I think it's at Chichester, uh, rural England, was just uh, remarkable. You know, the, the way I was transported and really put my feet in his shoes. And so Jude uh, was the first book I ever read that I really connected with. Mm. I'm so struck. Firstly, thank you for sharing <laughs> so much. No, 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 it's beautiful. It's it's exactly what I always hope that this show is, is is mm. truly the the uh how a book might have unlocked an area mm. of oneself. And and I'm always so grateful when um my guest is is as generous with themselves and with their story as, as you are being. Um a, a couple of things strike me. One is that I'm so glad you, you, you told that about that your childhood didn't have many books in it because mm -hmm. one of the things in Shaggy that I noticed and that was so struck by because it's so anomalous, I think, is that many books carry the trope, if you like, of the child who is wiser than his years, who is removed from his environment, observing it and mm -hmm most of the time whose retreat mm -hmm. is into books. Mm -hmm. In my experience, that is uh, because that person, that character is so often the author's stand-in and that that has been the author's experience is this, yeah. uh, the, the, the sense of misfit uh, allows for a retreat into the world of, of books. And in Shuggy, 
I could, I actually sort of leaf through it and you'll know more accurately than I, I could only find two books in it. Mm-hmm. There's the mm-hmm. Freeman's catalog and he's reading Danny, the champion of the world at one point. Mm-hmm. And I was so struck by the absence of that and mm-hmm. had thought, I wonder what life would have been for Shuggy with a book. Would mm-hmm. that have a, given a place to fit in? So, and you never want to presume anything about the novel that you're reading and the author mm-hmm. who has written it. But with a first novel, who was said in Glasgow and knowing the little that I'd known about your biography, I had been curious where books had fitted in for mm-hmm. you. So it makes such sense that they came later and that as you say that there's this huge correlation between the need for peace for 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 mm. a boundary that mm. that can't happen when you have an addict for a parent that's mm. the first boundary that that it, that is eroded actually yeah it's, it's just yeah mm. You, um, I read your uh, beautiful short story. I read both the ones that were in the New Yorker, and in that um, short story, "Found Wanting," there was this line that just haunted me. And it, you said, "Oh, I'm sorry." Your character said, uh, "He's in his um, uh, the get boarding house that he's staying mm. in, and he hears the drunken men coming home, staggering down the corridor, peeing mm. and fumbling with the locks." And he says, "I felt euphoric relief, relief that these alkies were not mine to save," mm. and it felt like uh, an echo of Shuggy and where mm-hmm. he finds himself at the end, and the the weight of of knowing. Uh, the weight of living with that kind of responsibility uh, mm. and what that what that is to carry as a young as a, a young human in the world yeah I, I mean certainly you know part of the reason why it took me ten years to write Shaggy Bain and part of the reason why it took ten years was because I was trying to conjure a lot of quite traumatic memories and and to set them on the page. But I was also trying to memorialize a lot of wonderful things too, Mm. a lot of wonderful things about my mother and my mother's struggle. And although I turn it into a work of fiction, you know, there's really uh, a very personal experience with addiction at the heart of it. Mm. Um, But, you know, for all the terrible things that my mother could be and could happen to her, I would still want her back today. You know, I would want her, you know, I would want her in my life and I would like hopefully for her to have seen all the wonderful things that my adult life became. But, you know, I write from that position of grief and from loss. And so when I write the short story for the New Yorker and I do write that line about, you know, he listens to the other alcoholics, these men in this boarding home come home and he thinks to himself, that's not mine. That's no longer my concern. Um, that is really writing from that one sense of peace. And there was peace for my mother in her loss as well, Sonia, because mm. she was so troubled. Mm. She was so tortured mm. um, for, you know, for at least 16 years, as long as I remembered. Mm. And then also for us who loved her just to mm. see her finally at rest. And, you know, it was, it was such a strange thing, but yeah, there was no way I could, I could read a book as a kid. You know, I read the things that were on the curriculum that you get dragged through, mm-hmm. But as soon as the page you're meant to read is closed and you've done the assignment, I just closed the book. Yeah. I just couldn't, I couldn't concentrate in that way. But, you know, at the same time, it's been an interesting thing because it's made me so appreciative of books as an adult now mm-hmm. and also really hungry. When I start at 16, 17 and I'm actually able to focus, I suddenly like I'm craving to find a reflection or an intersection of myself on the page. Mm. And you'll know growing up in the UK, you know, most of what's on the curriculum is very classical or it's very English. It's very middle class. Mm -hmm. And so it's relevance, it's direct relevance to a poor Scottish queer young man was, was, hardly anything, which is why Jude the Obscure talks to me, you know, because at least it is talking about the working class in a way. And in fact, when it was published, he was really criticized for it because people said, why are you telling us about these lives? Why are you telling us about this grubby existence? Um, Who would want to hear about about a poor man and thwarted potential? Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is I do. And so many people did, you know, but that's a reflection of how middle-class literary literary circles can be. And, you know, how there's always more need for representation there. 
a hundred percent. He he was reviled for it. In fact, it was the last novel yeah. he finished. He went exclusively right. to poetry after this. He he had this. Uh, he said apparently in an interview that if Galileo had said in verse that the world moved, the Inquisition might have left him alone. He felt <laughs> like you could, you could disguise yourself in poetry and your agenda and be left in peace and not be uh, uh, reviled in the same in the same way that he was. Um. I, I want to continue talking because your next books go deeper into what you're talking about in terms of class and feeling reflected and mirrored on the page. There's right. no question that the publishing world has been historically run by a, a, a white English middle class and mm-hmm. that, that, you know, maybe one, maybe they could be forgiven for therefore only representing their own. I think mm-hmm. in this day and age, that's uh, no longer plausible. Um, but I think that finding the diversity of voice uh, becomes essential when you're looking, as you say, to feel mirrored on the page. And mm-hmm. then as a reader, I feel in this day and age, politically with a small p, it becomes imperative to keep including the diversity mm-hmm. of voices on the page. It's If I have any agenda, and it's minimal with this podcast, it is in an attempt to widen uh, my frame of reference and therefore by extension my reader's frame to mm-hmm. ask them to peer over the edge of what they might be comfortable reading or accustomed to and look into uh, this work of philosophy, this scientist, this queer Scottish writer, this uh, gay African-American novelist. My my hope is that by uh, curating as diverse a guest list as I have, that we with it get to embrace all these different voices. So on that note, let's, that. Talk, <laughs> let's talk about uh, your second book, A Kestrel for a Knave by Barry Hines, published in 1968. I was thrilled to come across this one because, <laughs> uh, because I grew up with Kez, as I think many of us yeah. did, the beautiful Ken Loach movie, knew it had been based on a novel and had never read the novel. So I actually found it as a PDF online because I was I didn't have time to get it. Amazon wasn't going to get it here. Improbably, <laughs> it wasn't going to get it here in time. So I got to skim it. And, and what a joy, what a beautiful piece of writing this is. Tell me about... Um, or, or sketch out briefly for those who might not have grown up with the movie or the book. Uh, tell me roughly what, what it's about and what it means to you, this book. Yeah, I think most of us might, uh, and I always hate saying this, I feel the same way about train spotting, but many of us have come to this work of literature through the film first. Mm-hmm. So we will know the Ken Loach film, Kess. But essentially, it's the story of a, a pubescent boy in Yorkshire in the 1960s and it's just a couple of days in his life it really happens at the moment before he reaches manhood before he has to go down into the mines or the coal pits with his brother so it's the last term of school for him in a way and he has this sort of ascension to manhood coming but also almost an end of living because the coal pits or the mines almost seem like a dead end you know his brother threatens him with it in a way that says this is an end of sort of fun and games for you. But it's almost the last summer in this young boy's life. And he has a hard life. You know, he's growing up in a very bleak, industrial Yorkshire coal mining town. And they're incredibly poor. His mother's a little bit wayward. She's always sort of running off and looking for, she's a single mother. She's looking for romance. She's looking to sort of get on with her life and have a good time. And she leaves the two brothers to to fend for themselves. His older brother, I think his name is Judd, gives uh, the, the the protagonist of the book is called Billy Casper, and he's one of my favorite heroes of all time. But, mm-hmm. but Judd gives him some money to put some money on the horses for him that morning, to gamble for him. And, and Billy gets a little bit turned around and forgets to do it. And, of course, Judd's horse comes in and wins. And so it sets off a disastrous chain of events for, for young Billy Casper. But amidst all of this uh, sort of oppression or just this heavy feeling, he finds this kestrel or he finds this this wild bird and he trains it to course, he trains it to lure. And it's in those moments that his spirit really, really soars. You know, he really flies above this coal mining town. And it's that, uh, just that feeling that he has that I think we all sort of, oh, your heart can break for him. Mm. But funnily enough, one of the, you know, a lot of the, 
the book is meant to be about how his spirit soars and how his he feels free when he's luring and training this kestrel. But actually, it you know, the, the beauty of the book for me is in the small domestic scenes. It is just when he's home with his brother and they're sort of teasing each other. But there's one especially heartbreaking scene where he's in school. It's perhaps his last term. And the teacher is teaching all the boys the difference between fact and fiction. And so he teaches the class about facts, something very true. And then he teaches them about fiction, which is a tall tale. And he asks all the boys to write a tall tale. Just write the wildest thing you can imagine, the thing you dream of. And the boys write about sort of monsters and spaceships and all the things that boys would. And Billy writes these four lines, which is just about coming home to a warm house, finding a hot dinner on the table, and a mother that's not destroyed by drink. And it's the quietest lines in the book, and they're absolutely heartbreaking, Mm -hmm. because that sort of very ordinary life is a fiction for him. Mm -hmm. And so for me, uh, I I wish I could just wrap Billy up and, you know, give him a big hug. He's such a, he's such a good character. Mm. It's beautiful. And, and I, I, I found the prose, uh, Astonishing. I, I wasn't prepared for this simple, transparent, uh, translucent, really. It just, mm-hmm. it, you're just in the room. You can see why a director like Ken Loach would have been drawn, not just to the story, but mm-hmm. to this, um, factual prose of it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm going to read a little because this is the first, this is the first paragraph. And I, mm-hmm. I always love where I can giving access so people get a flavor of of what we're talking about. There were no curtains up. The window was a hard-edged block, the color of the night sky. Inside the bedroom, the darkness of a gritty texture. The wardrobe and bed were blurred shapes in the darkness. Silence. Billy moved over towards the outside of the bed. Judd moved with him, leaving one half of the bed empty. He snorted and rubbed his nose. Billy whimpered. They settled. Wind whipped the window and swept along the wall outside. Billy turned over, Judd followed him and cough, coughed into his neck. Billy pulled the blankets up round his ears and wiped his neck with them. Most of the bed was now empty and the unoccupied space quickly cooled. Silence. Then the alarm rang. The noise brought Billy upright, feeling for it in the darkness, eyes shut tight. Judd groaned and hutched back across the cold sheet. He reached down the side of the bed and knocked the clock over, grabbed for it and knocked it further away. Come here, you bloody thing. I just love this, oh, so good. isn't it? It's so simple. Yeah. There's 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 barely an adjective in there. It's just mm. and and these quick, hard sort of declarative sentences, and mm-hmm. and they, uh, it's it's almost like the world that it is, which is there's there is no room for extra. There is no money for extra. There is just this sparse leanness of brothers sharing a bed, and mm-hmm. it's. Uh, I, I just I I always. Mm-hmm. Love. And yet you're right there with them through every sensory moment, you know, when he coughs on his neck, when he wipes his neck. It's it's so it's such spare prose, but it's so evocative. Totally. And it's it's something I would love to aspire to. I try to get there and yet it it seems so deceptively simple and actually it's the hardest thing to do to restrain yourself in that way and to and yet to paint this entire world. One of the reasons why um, a Kestrel for a Knave is important to me is because it's, you will know, Sonia, that there's so many amazing regional accents in the United Kingdom, mm. and yet you, you rarely see them reflected in literature because mm. there is a perceived or a received standard English that's meant to be how we write prose, how we how we talk in our dialects. And and actually, Barry Hines does away with that. And the, the Yorkshire dialect is gorgeous. Mm. It reads like a melody. It's, you know, there's a real song to it. And... And for me, it was a very inspiring uh, read because it it gave me courage whenever I thought about Shaggy Bain, mm. about really sort of writing from the character's point of view. And I thought, well, you know, if Barry Hines can do it and he can sweep you up in the song of Yorkshire, then, mm. then we can do the same thing in Glasgow. And so I, I just love that. Mm. I love it too. And I also loved that you didn't shy away from it in Shaggy, that you, that you write in the dialect. It was so... I think it adds to the richness and to the texture of the time. And, and I'm, you know, I think it helps if you can hold a Glasgow accent in your head. I wouldn't pretend to aspire to one, Uh, but, uh, but privately in my head, I think I can do one, but I wouldn't dream it outside. But I know, but it, I, I find that it helps that enormously. I, 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 and I agree. I loved hearing, I hearing Barry Hines's voice too. 
Yeah, I think it was, um, I think actually the choice of writing some, and not all of the book is written in Glaswegian dialect, because actually the characters play with what they want to conceal and reveal. And and the protagonist of Agnes Bain is a woman who really wants to be upwardly mobile. Mm. So she denies herself her own working class tongue and sounds a little bit like a, like a newscaster in a way. Mm. But, um, you know, just... I think that was part of the reason, even just choosing to write in Glaswegian dialect was the reason Chuggy was rejected 44 times by editors, because there still is that notion that, you know, that there is a perceived or received English. Mm. Um, and when you veer from that, people wonder if readers can follow along. And of course you can. Mm. There's a melody to writing. And as soon as you unlock the rhythm of someone's speech pattern, you can, you can hear all of it. And actually it becomes richer for it, I believe. I think so too. Mm. Let's talk about The Swimming Pool Library, your third book by Alan yeah. Hollinghurst, which was published in 1988, which does not have regional dialect in it, which <laughs> is, uh, which is, uh, I love Hollinghurst and I was really delighted to see him on your list. Uh, the Swimming Pool Library was the first one of his that I had read and I was so, I remember being swept away by this book. I think it was the first piece of, gay fiction I had read and I was floored by how sexy I found it. I, I just thought it was uh, immersive and illicit and um, so extraordinary to paint this rich upper class world and and let it coexist with this seedy underworld mm. and these tropes of these sort of Morris type uh, rich young men or, and mm -hmm. much older men, uh, which, you know, as a girl who grew up in the upper middle class and had mm -hmm. know about people who go to clubs and old men who've grown up in colonial worlds and come back and mm -hmm. gaily with their stories. To me, it was this amazing inversion of a mm -hmm. world that I thought I knew. It felt like someone had lifted the lid on it and talked about the whole world that I was like, oh yes, of course, of course some of these men are gay. Why has no one, why has no one ever written about this? Why has no one ever told me about this? Um, and then let's, and then, then Alan Hollinghurst is a master stylist. So there was, so there oh. was that. So there's my, there's my little uh, two cents <laughs> on the swimming pool library, but we're here for yours. Tell me, <laughs> tell me when, when you read it and what, what kind of uh, change it made in you or for you. Yeah. So when I, I begin to start reading as a young man, I go out in search of sort of reflections of my queerness. Mm. And this, I got this book when it was still uh, in the gay section at the back of the bookstore. You know, we hadn't quite yet. I think we start to do it when Alan Hollinghurst wins with the line of beauty for mm -hmm. the booker. We start to get onto the front table. But at this point, we're still a niche interest and we're still on a shelf at the back. And, and exactly what you said. I mean, I just loved it. I devoured it. It's such a raw, it's really hedonistic. I mean, the protagonist, William Beckwith, is this young aristocrat who has almost no consequence in life. Mm. Um, and he goes around London and he has sex with working class men while he writes the uh, the biography of this elderly lord. But as you say, anytime he steps into a private men's club, uh, these are worlds I will never see in my lifetime, perhaps. And you're just you're just blown away by Hollinghurst's ability to to just conjure the moment. Um, but it was also quite a contrasting book for me, you know, because it's set before the AIDS epidemic or the scourge of AIDS. And, and the characters act in that way. You know, they have very casual sex. They, I don't think they use protection. Um, but they're also having a wonderful time. London's full of life. There's lots of underground nightclubs. There's all of these fantastic things. And yet I read it probably in 1992 and AIDS is a terrifying thing. You know, I grew up with it. Uh, from my earliest memory, and I equate, you know, sex and sexual freedom with the with disease and death, and mm -hmm. and also I think also being from the working class, we we've spoken a little bit about the class divide, but here's this William Beckwith who just acts with impunity. You know, he mm -hmm. he glides so easily through the world. He's he's like this. Uh, he's really um, a wonderful character, but. Then there's myself in Glasgow in 1992, who's concealing everything about himself, who's terrified about sexual promiscuity, who's all of these things. So again, it was another way to step into worlds I would never know. And this time it was sort of a world that was divided by, by the AIDS epidemic. Mm. Did it feel 
aspirational in the sense of I, I would want access to that world or did it feel like the sort of bemusement of what is this gilded cage, these strange animals prowl in? Like what, what do you remember that? Yeah, it felt like the highest sort of form of fantasy writing to me uh-huh. because I didn't see any of it reflected around me. And so, you know, just the idea of these private lunches and, you know, mm-hmm. these screenings and these grand hotels, it really felt like, you know, it reads like a classical novel in many yes. ways. It now has the intersection of queerness and and, and hedonism. Yeah. Um, but it also felt strange to me, and this is something I wrestled with all throughout my 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 life actually is how much of the queer fiction that I digested, whether that would be E. M. Forrester's Maurice or or Baldwin's Giovanni's Room, is always written from an, a middle class or upper middle class or upper class perspective. And so I was still searching in many ways for like the working class queer perspective. What do young queer people think about and how do they carry themselves in literature and do this? And in fact you know, one of the things that delights me and also makes me roll my eyes a little bit about the swimming pool library is often in this book, working class men are just fetishized, you know, whether it's, um, he sees them as sexual conquest, you know, we don't really hear about their own wants or their own needs. He just, he sees them as a bit of rough and a bit of trade. And, and you see the same thing in, uh, in Baldwin's Giovanni's room, you know, uh, Giovanni is a little bit of a plaything, and he's kept in this room and then he's sort of, you know, he's used and then he's abandoned in a way. And certainly in Maurice, you know, Scudder comes in at the very end, but Maurice has had this whole rich interior life. And now this young working class man, man's about to throw it all away just to follow this protagonist around the world. And so I was always trying to dig a little bit deeper and hear from those men, you know, just hear a little bit more from them. But you did that in the Englishman, don't you? I think mm. I think that's what your short story in the New Yorker is, is this beautiful inversion where you have the young Scott who's brought down, as it were. No, brought down, not He's even as it down. were. He is officially brought to London by this yeah. rich older man who wants a houseboy for the summer. Yeah. And 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 your young hero rejects him he is the one with the agency who at the end says i do not want this i understand what a houseboy is and Mm -hmm. i reject this and goes back on the train with nothing but his beautiful cashmere sweater as a (laughs) token of what he's experienced and but the but the rejection is is absolute, even though the Englishman, and I love that it's called the Englishman, it's such a great title, <laughs> even though the Englishman sort of uh, volunteers, wages that uh, this young man will be back, that, that they all come back in the end, that he'll end up taking him to Greece or on one of his trips yeah, exactly. or whatever. And, and I don't think so. <laughs> I did not. I, I felt like, no, no, no. And, and particularly reading it in the light of this list and thinking about you and your work mm. and, 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 and the, the um, doggedness with which it seems to me you, you resolve to have this voice, have this experience on the page for the mm. rest of us to identify with, mm. uh, that, that it is imperative to you, it seems to me, and I and I and I relate to have this working class experience, not as not fetishized, but with agency, with mm-hmm. albeit the limited choices, mm-hmm. but choices nonetheless. And the the rejection of powerlessness uh, seems profound and important. And I I I love I love hearing that. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been thinking about that story for a really long time, and it's in response to a lot of the books I just mentioned. Mm. But, you know, it was sort of, it just felt like people of a different class could act on their queerness with impunity and and be free in the world. It was coded and it was hidden, Mm. but, you know, it was almost celebrated as well. I mean, for every chariots of fire Mm. I've ever seen, there's, you know, there's a Maurice, there's all of these things. Even if you think about Yana Gahara's A Little Life, these men can celebrate their queerness because they have the comfort of money. Mm. And sometimes when you don't have the comfort of money or when your mobility is limited by the four streets you grow up on, you just don't experience queerness in the same way. Mm. And so I wanted the protagonist in that story to have to make choices, but also 
for him to be in charge and for him to reject this man who has all the power, really. He has the money and he has the, the you know, all the mobility. And yet the young man's just like, this is not what I want. Mm. Um, this is not what it is. So I'm always trying to answer that queerness from a class point of view. I have a pretty big axe to grind if you haven't. Uh, <laughs> no, that so it. it's, it's, it's great. It's an axe worth grinding. I, I'm, I'm here to hold the whetstone. Uh, Hollinghurst, yeah. <laughs> Hollinghurst uh, said in an interview, uh, I forget whether it was about the swimming pool library, but it, I, I think it probably was. He said, I've always felt rich people have more scope for behaving badly. And mm-hmm. um, I think that's, probably true i think there is uh put it this way a more lavishly appointed playground for them even if yeah. and, I think there's, and there's less consequence as well and so i think he's i think he's absolutely right in that and my goodness i mean i love all of alan hollinghurst books but this one for me is really hmm. uh special because it is but it's it's a little bit raw like i said before he he writes his other books and he goes on to win the booker and it is really sexy it's Mm, just it really is into this world that no longer exists in a way Mm. um it's fantastic let's talk about i could keep going on that i could keep going on (laughs) many of these but we should move along uh let's talk about your next book which is young adam by alexander is it trocky do we I would say Trocky, yeah. It was published in 1954. Mm. Uh, in case I cut out the earlier bit where you and I chatting, I'm just going to say I only knew the the movie Young Adam mm. because my great friend and former guest Emily Mortimer was in it. Um, and it was a movie that I know she cherished being a part of. Mm. So I was thrilled. I did not know the book. I had never heard of the book and I had never Mm. heard of him. So it was astonishing to do a dive and discover that Ginsburg described him as the most brilliant man I've ever met. Uh, That the Bloomsbury Review described this book as maybe the greatest unknown writer in the world. Uh, This is a book that excites real love and passion. And again, I, I dug around and found a copy in time and, and, have some mm. extracts to read out later because I I see why it's it was it's mm. some beautiful prose. Tell me what the book means to you and and when you or how you came across it. Yeah, actually, I came across it quite late in life, and I think I actually saw the movie first, mm-hmm. uh, which your friend Emily was amazing in. Mm-hmm. The movie is uh, fantastic, but this is one of the places where I think the book for sure is better, mm-hmm. um, or just a different experience that's, mm-hmm. that, that sort of asks the reader to collaborate. But it's a book that has really stayed with me. You're right in the fact that Trocky is is mostly unknown, and I think a lot of it is because he had quite a hard life. You know, he was a heroin addict in his lifetime, and he wrote another book called The Book of Cain, I think it is, mm-hmm. which is like a very first-hand account of him trying to score hits and find heroin in New York in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But I think his addiction overshadowed an awful lot of his work. But this, for me, is his masterpiece, Young Adam. But it's the story of um, barge hands working on a canal in Glasgow. And the protagonist is a man called Joe, who is a sort of man in his 20s. And the book opens where we see him staring at a body in the water of this young woman who's partially dressed. And if, as they hoist her out of the water, we think, oh, he knows nothing about it. This is a sad thing for the woman. And yet, as the book sort of unfolds, as the movie unfolds, you realize he has um, he knows more about it than he lets on. It's set mostly in this very claustrophobic cabin on this barge. You know, a barge can't be very big. It must be about 40 feet and the cabin must be tiny. But he lives in the cabin with his boss and his boss's wife, who's called Ella, who in the movie is played magnificently by Tilda Swinton. But Joe and Ella begin to seduce each other. And so they're trapped in this tiny little wooden box. And they have these very sort of sexy, small moments uh, just at the table while her husband is fully present and, and totally unaware. But for me, it's one of those um, remarkable portraits. You know, Joe is definitely losing his sexual charisma and he doesn't have much else besides, I would say. You know, he's he's really working hand to mouth. But it's about how I think people can use each other. Um, you know, none of the characters, it's, it's one of my favorite books, but none of the characters are especially likable. Mm. And they go through sort of swinging from relationships with each other onto another one, all against the backdrop of this this poor dead girl and who is she? Um, but you know, it's 
the sex in the book takes on this desperation a little bit. There's there's a bartering to it, and the coupling feels like it's an act of survival. But it's a fascinating study in humanity, and and much like the Barry Hines thing, it's written in very spare prose. What did it uh, open for you as a person or as a writer? What what did it access? One of the things it taught me was that characters don't have to be likable. Mm. I think in fiction, there's a huge amount of pressure that we're meant to understand or sympathize with people or, or at least like them on some level. Mm. And I have to say that Joe and Ella and most of the people in the book come out of the end pretty unlikable. Mm. And I think that's a really brave thing because you still root for them. You still want them to know what's going to happen, but you don't you don't feel uh, sort of any kind of love for them. Mm. And so for me as a writer, I think that's a real masterclass in that. And, and, and I love that. But, you know, again, it was, uh, these are men, they're fictionalized barge hands, but, you know, I grew up against the backdrop of shipbuilding and there were barge hands. And, and I always love to just see uh, real life treated with dignity and with attention and with detail. You know, we're so used to the sweep of classical novels with gilded, you know, interiors and brocaded furnishings. And and yet sometimes when we talk about working class literature, we don't give the dignity to those details because we feel like we almost shouldn't be talking about those things. Mm. But Trocky does it. He explains the world beautifully and he, and he takes our time. And it was something in a way, not only Trocky, but many great working class writers. It's something I wanted to emulate with Shuggy. I wanted to create quite a classical novel in its sweep and in its immersion, but I wanted to set it in a world where people don't have very much money. Mm. You job done. Uh, <laughs> it really is. Uh, I think um, I want to read. I want to read a little bit from it because I, I think the prose really does does something extraordinary here. And it's the bit that you just described. It's the moment where he discovers the body. Mm. It had come floating downstream, willowy, like a tangle of weeds. She was beautiful in a pale way. Not her face, although that wasn't bad, but the way her body seemed to have given itself to the water. Its whole gesture abandoned, long white legs apart and trailing, sucked downward slightly at the feet. As I leaned over the edge of the barge with a boat hook, I didn't think of her as a dead woman, not even when I looked at the face. She was like some beautiful white water fungus, a strange, shining thing come up from the depths, and her limbs and her flesh had the ripeness and maturity of a large mushroom. But it was the hair more than anything. It stranded away from the body like long grasses, only it was alive, and because the body was slow, heavy, torpid, it had become a forest of antenna, caressing, feeding on the water, intricately. That's just, uh, that's an extraordinary feat of description and yet is also dissociated, right? Mm-hmm. There's, there's, so there's this, uh, this almost scientific and, and yet scientific in the meticulousness with which it's broken down into its mm-hmm. component parts. Uh, it's, and yet you feel uh, this sense of sort of modernity, right? Of, mm-hmm. of, of look, the act of looking at something and almost looking at yourself while you're looking at something, that, that, mm-hmm. the, the detachment of it. And yet it is not detached prose. It is this immersive mm-hmm you know, slow, heavy, torpid, a large mushroom mm-hmm. caressing, feeding on the body. It's this enormously sensual prose mm-hmm. as well. It's it's such an interesting it's such an interesting thing to have pulled off. It really is. And actually now that you read it back to me, it's not so spare at all. I always thought of it as maybe it's the subject matter that's quite brutal. But you know, even you're you're right in the fact that there feels like a distance because I think he says she was beautiful, but not about the face. Mm. And to like sort of reduce a body like that instantly and say, Yeah, but she wasn't pretty mm. actually sets you up for how the character sees a lot of things in the right. world. But when I was talking about the claustrophobia earlier, you reading that passage about the body reminded me that so much of this book is about the body. It's about how the politics visit on the body, the intimacy, how they bump against each other mm-hmm. on the boat, how they use each other. And that's one of the remarkable things. You know, I'm, I'm not a scholar in any way, but when you talk about sensoriness and when I, for the little bit I've read from the book of Cain, you have that sort of feeling in how he describes drugs and how he describes taking a high mm-hmm. and getting a hit. You know, everything almost becomes uh, otherworldly to him when he talks about vines and mushrooms and, and tangles of seaweeds. He's, mm. you know, it's almost hallucinatory in a way. Mm. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think so too. It's um, it felt really fun to to learn this book. I, I you know, I've as I say, I've ordered it immediately because I mm. I found these extracts and just couldn't couldn't get enough of it and felt mm. um, sort of flawed that I didn't know I didn't know this writer at all. So yeah, you know. he's he's been a huge influence on me again because part of the reason why I wrote Shuggy, although it wasn't a conscious thought, was it was more of a feeling, but I realized I was doing it as I started to do it was I wanted to insert women, uh, mothers, and also young queer men into this landscape. You know, Shuggy stands, Shuggy Bain stands in a literary tradition. If you think about Irvin Welsh's train spotting, mm. uh, you think about the other Booker winner, James Kelman, how late it was, how late, and then young Adam in these industrial landscapes against this sort of economic unheaval, upheaval, it's normally men that are centered. You know, it's mm. the working man and it's male voices. And they can be as terrible as they want. They can drink as much as they want. They can mm-hmm. browse. They can be they can be terrible. But you very rarely hear from a female protagonist and you never hear from a queer protagonist. Mm. And so in a way I wanted to write Shuggy and Agnes just to say they are also here, you know. I didn't know how the world would receive the book, but it's about adding that warp thread to the to the tapestry and just saying, you know, here are the women in this moment and here are the young queer boys. And and in fact, most everybody in Shuggy Bane is a woman. Agnes's entire world is sometimes about sorority, sometimes about uh, having, you know, sort of being at odds with the women around her. But it's I wanted to really make it a very feminine world. And it's an answer to books like this that, that focus on men. It's so interesting. I felt that too. Listen, you know, listening to you and, and reading your books, your the books that you chose, I felt the continuity with Shuggy. I felt like, oh, mm. here's 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 the lineage, here's the patrimony, mm. if you like, or rather, yeah. matrimony. <laughs> yeah. <the> line. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I, I I felt that too. Reading Shuggy, I felt like, oh, this is um, an answer to to the patriarchy of industrialism mm-hmm. in, in many ways. It yeah. felt like uh, here is, and, and you know, in, we can call it bullying that Shuggy undergoes, or you could call it misogyny in a way too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a rejection of the feminine in mm-hmm. him, right? That, mm-hmm. and, totally. and the misogyny that Agnes and, and everyone, <laughs> every woman in 80s Britain, I would argue, uh, <laughs> uh, dealt with in some shape or form. Uh, it, it felt palpable and and it's interesting i keep thinking when you're talking about you know industrial worlds and and um the lack of representation i keep flashing and maybe this is just because i'm reading it to I me mean, now i keep flashing on dickens interestingly mm. I, I keep thinking of him and that yes there are caricatures yes there are tropes uh but his determination to give you a teeming world from top mm-hmm. to bottom as best mm-hmm. he can uh made him you know i'm, I'm reading my eight-year-old i found this beautiful book called tales from dickens so mm. when, you know <laughs> to be clear we are not <laughs> reading dickens to my eight-year-old but they are these beautiful kind of like lamb's tales from shakespeare but these mm. uh condensed versions eight pages of of the ones that are sort of most child-friendly and so we've just been doing david copperfield me and Billy, my daughter. And I was so struck. It made me want to immediately go back and reread David Copperfield, which I read many, many times as a teenager and haven't for years. But to be reminded of, particularly in that novel, how willing and determined he is to earth himself in a working class, in a, in a, in a group of people who, who, you know, work with the sea, work with the land Mm -hmm. and that, what he's when he's at his best is when he's describing the aspirational element, the longing to be a gentleman that happens, mm-hmm. you know, in Great Expectations and in David Copperfield. That there's and that is always where the where the pain and the anguish lies. That's where the fall always comes. Is is in trying to escape one's own class, mm-hmm. uh, and he captures totally. it so beautifully because he spends so much time earthing us in what we, the reader, come to realize is the world in which he actually belongs, um, mm-hmm. and that that so that those those falls are hard are earned because you have this sense of don't 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 leave the world. <laughs> 
the yeah. world that your your feet are anchored in, you know. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and, and part of that is intrinsically British, you know, the sense of where we belong. And it's a very different feeling to being American now. You know, we we are, even if we sort of move from our social class, it's still so entrenched in us. And, you know, I live in New York now, but Glasgow is my spiritual heart. And, and I almost can never leave that behind. But I have a confession. I mean, for... For how Dickensian Shuggy Bane can be, I've never actually read any Charles Dickens, hmm. um, which is such a strange thing for a British person to say. But I think I'd absorb so much of it through other culture. Yes. I never sat down and read a book. I need to do that. You don't um, have to at all. If you want to <laughs> read, uh, I would, my my uh, Great Expectations and, and uh, David Copperfield are the two that I, I think are head and shoulders yeah. above above the others they're the two that are closest to him his okay. story too and and are marvelous but no i agree dickens shakespeare that they're, they're whether you've read them or not i'm not pretending you haven't i'm just saying they're, they're so embedded in every cup of tea you have every tea towel you've ever wiped your dishes with That's every, it. every beer mat you've ever put a pint down on they're, they're <laughs> you you've read them You've read them, you've read them, yeah. But, um, you know, one of the last things is is part of the reason why Young Adam appealed to me and part of the, you know, everyone says to me, well, Glasgow's a man's world, Glasgow's a man's world. And we do think of it, we think of cities as either feminine or masculine. And Glasgow would be quite a masculine city. Mm. But I had never known it to be masculine because of how I was brought up. First of all, I was the son of a single mother, but also I was excluded for being effeminate. Mm. And so the boys wanted nothing to do with me. I didn't play football. I wouldn't go chasing girls. I couldn't fight. And so my entire world was actually women. And, and that, in a way, is sort of my answer to young Adam. You know, that's mm. shaggy that I wanted to create, where I, I just wanted to show this women's world, where because it was authentically the world that I grew up in. And, mm. and at the time, I was, you know, I was angry about it as a young boy because it felt like, God, I felt in the wrong place. But now it was such a rich world to be. There was so much strength and power and insight there and self-expression. You know, there was the women were saying much more interesting things than the men around me ever would have anyway. And so in a way, now as a writer, I'm like, God, I was lucky. I was lucky to have a seat to my single mom. I mean, she could never afford a babysitter. So anytime she had to go anywhere, I was weaked, like along behind her and I was dragged. And, and so my entire world was just women and, and the women that my mother knew. And so I'm grateful for it now. Yeah, I bet. I am too. Um, <laughs> let's talk about your last book, which has a woman at the center of it. Uh, yeah. the, your last book is The Trick Is to Keep Breathing, which is mm. a great title, by Janice Galloway. And it was published in 1989. I did not know this book. And it was mm. hard, hard to find uh, excerpts, actually, because I, I couldn't get it in time. But tell me, tell me when you read this book and, and where it falls in your life. Yeah, I read the book when I was actually a young man. I've read it twice in my life. Um, and I read it when I was about 23. And I missed the point of it entirely. Uh, it was too much. I mean, I just, it actually, um, it's a it's a book that really deals with uh, the woman at the heart of it and her mental disintegration and and just her loneliness and her and her needs. But um, for me as a young man, I, I almost couldn't absorb it, Sonia. It didn't, you know, I missed all the intricacies of it and all the truth of it. And it was only when I read it again when I was writing Shuggy when I was about thirty six or thirty seven that I suddenly thought, oh my god, I this is such a gem and, and, you know, I'm so glad I went back to it because uh, it's, it's really a fantastic book. Um, you know, we were talking about men and women and we were talking about literary traditions, but I'm going to get cancelled for this next thing I say, but, you know, Janice Galloway is a Scottish writer and I think actually she's one of the greatest Scottish writers, mm -hmm. but Scottish writers, the ones that are famous tend to often be men. And, uh, and so we sometimes overlook our female authors and everyone is sleeping on Janice Galloway. We should all read this book. This was her debut and it won the Whitbread First Novel Prize. But, you know, it's the story of a woman who's called Joy, um, which is a bit of a misnomer because actually Joy <laughs> is having a really tough time. You know, there's this amazing line where she says, I've lost the ease of being inside my own skin. Mm. But Joy is uh, a woman, a young woman, and she's grieving both the death of her mother uh, on top of the accidental drowning of her illicit lover. She's carrying on with a married man and he and he drowns. Um, and so she really sort of starts to succumb to this like increased isolation and uh, depression that 
sort of has intersects with anorexia and alcoholism. So when I read it at um, 23, I almost couldn't, you know, it just, I missed so much of it. But reading it again as an adult, I could sort of empathize and sympathize with joy. But, you know, uh, Janice Galloway attends to these really small, intimate thoughts and moments with such clarity that they're really, you know, they're really quite mind-blowing. They're quite shocking. It's such a interrogation of this woman's mental state or just a, a real sort of uh, journey through it that it's it's really a powerful book. Mm. Did it, so in terms of its impact on you, is it, uh, it sounds like reading it during Shuggy, was it permission uh, for Agnes? Was it was it a uh, validation of her and her addiction? Talk, talk to me about where where it landed in your yeah, development as a writer. Yeah, it landed in all those places. Um, one of the things about Shuggy Bain is, you know, Glasgow was going through about 26% unemployment and the Thatcher government took about 11 years off of the life expectancy of a man living in the East End. It's enormous for the first world. I mean, and... So when I say that I grew up around disintegrating women, I mean not just inside my own home, but for streets and streets around. There was lots of mothers that were just having a really tough time. And, you know, as much as you can sort of see that and you can be a part of it and you can understand perhaps the subculture of addiction or the subculture of women who are having a difficult time, I couldn't quite project myself into the, I couldn't put my feet in their shoes. Mm. And as a writer, I couldn't, you know, really get there. I also couldn't, I could tell you what my mother's journey made me feel like, but I had to understand in writing Shuggy, how did she get there? You know, what would make you make those choices? And so in a way, Janice Galloway's book is such a clear call about mental health and such an intimate look at it that it just brought out this enormous empathy in me. It just clarified a lot of things that I'd seen the result of, but I hadn't necessarily known the interior world of. Mm. Um, And, you know, when I think often as well about sort of what we do to men and then what we do to women, you know, when men sort of drink heavily or when they fail or when they act badly, we forgive them. We almost think that's what boys do and mm-hmm. and we don't isolate them within a society. But when mothers or when women do that, we isolate them very quickly. We almost cannot deal with it because we have to deal with it. We also have to deal with their pain. And we're in a way at the time we're all complicit in the pain we cause to these women uh, mm-hmm. because of the patriarchy. And Janice Galloway's book for me was just about accessing that. And it was such a generous look at it that it totally changed who I was as a man and also changed who I was as a writer. Wow. That's a, that's an amazing claim to make. No, it's incredible. It really is. And, and I wish, um, dare I say it, maybe I'll get canceled for this. I wish (laughs) straight men uh, were as willing to avail themselves of the female voice as you have been. I, I, it seems to me, uh, and that's not to just generalize and say, oh, gay men like women. I, I, I don't think that's true. I think that's, you know, I think that's something you have specifically chosen to do as well and to, and that your life has encouraged and evoked in you with the mum that you have. I, I wish, I wish more straight men, uh, first of all, picked women as one of their authors. It's, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me. Uh, and, and listen, it's so often this, these lists are, are very unconscious on our part too. I, I had my producer interview me at the end of season one just to see what it was like to be in the hot seat. And right. I, to my horror, picked five straight dead white men. Those mm-hmm. were my authors. Now, I wanted to revise that list. I desperately wanted to make it more diverse and I screwed my courage to the sticking place and uh, honored it because, because that is the, because that was the truth. If I am scrupulous about what formed me uh, now, I, I can say with all honesty that this podcast has widened that lens tremendously and that I have many, many more books now that I could say have shaped my worldview and continue to do it. Mm. Uh, I think that's, you know, 
in in some ways, I hope this podcast goes deep into the future and that I can re-interview people because I think it would be such an interesting question to revisit for oneself in 20 years time and see, uh, oh, where was, or what was, what were those five? Like, maybe I'll make it a feature that in 20 years time, I'll send you all an email with your, even if I don't do the podcast, just as a reminder, as a little sort of uh, message in a bottle from the past about what were the five books that had shaped and, and whether they continue to do so or whether those five have evolved in some way. Um, I'm so grateful to you, Douglas, for making the time and for being so thoughtful in your choices and for opening a world to me of voices that I did not know and that I'm really longing to to dive into and, and explore more. And and thank you again for Shuggy. I treasure him. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's always a joy to talk about books. And so I'm always grateful to take that opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that was wonderful. I could have talked to Douglas for hours. Just his voice alone, I find so soothing. That was such a treat for me. So thank you, Douglas, for sharing yourself so generously and being so thoughtful about the books you chose. I've read or gone on to reread Young Adam and A Kestrel for a Knave since we spoke, and they're just wonderful books, and I don't think I'd have picked them up otherwise. I really love how many of Douglas's books, including his own one, Shuggy Bane, have such an immersive sense of place. I remember having the extraordinary experience of reading In Patagonia by Bruce Chapman on my gap year, hitchhiking my way through southern Argentina. And I was reading it in the back of a pickup truck, just as we crossed into one of the very villages he was writing about, that he'd been in 30, 40 years before. When I revisit that book now, I can feel the jolt of the road underneath me and the weight of that stinky backpack cutting into my shoulders. I wonder what books take you back? Which ones left you feeling that you had actually been there? Pop your answers on our Instagram page, Bookish with Sonia. I look forward to hearing from you. It's so fun to continue the conversation and get recommendations from you all and see what you've been responding to and reading. As ever, deep thanks to Bree Weiss for producing the episode and everything else connected to the show. And uh, thank you again to Douglas. Thank you to Grove Atlantic for helping set this up and to Instagram, which is where I was brave enough to reach out to Douglas and he was gracious enough to respond. Love the damn interweb. Uh, So find the books in the show notes or on the website. And while you're in the show notes, leave us a review and subscribe. Tell a friend about our podcast. Buy them a book that you've read about here. Take them that instead of a bottle of wine when you go for dinner. And let me know what you've loved and what surprised you. Join me next week for my interview with the wonderful actor, William H. Macy. Mm -hmm.